thank you. Hopefully you can all see my shared screen. Yep, looks um, great. Just to introduce myself, um, I'm Susan Greeny. I work for English Heritage. Um, my specialism is uh, prehistory, very much involved uh, with how we present Stonehenge, but I'm not going to mention Stonehenge too much today. Uh, it gets too much attention anyway. Um, so lately, I guess over the last sort of five years or so, I've been involved in projects where um, I've become more interested in the folklore uh, of our sites that we look after in guardianship. And this sort of predates the the theme year that we had in 2019 of, of myths and legends across English heritage. Um, but what I wanted to do is a bit like um, Sally is doing a sort of question raising session really about how we present um, folklore and myths um, to the public and um, uh, what, what might be the different ways of approaching that um, and some of the issues um, involved in that. Some speakers uh, both on Friday and today have talked about heritage interpretation and the absence thereof um, at various uh, historic places and places associated with myths. Um, so that's sort of where I'm going with this. So firstly, I just start by acknowledging a debt to Leslie Grinsell. I'm sure many of you are familiar with his work, but Leslie was um, somebody who really took folklore um, seriously in his accounts of prehistoric places. And he used uh, archeological evidence, historical evidence, place name evidence, uh, folklore documents, all kinds of different sources to write really, really useful books and pamphlets about some of the sites that we look after in our English heritage collection today. Um, and I think, I guess maybe just a motto, we ought to all be a bit more Grinsel and that he, he did uh, kind of take all these uh, different sources of information and apply equal weight to them. Um, and I think we sometimes have uh, drifted from that in, in the intervening period. So I just wanted to go through a couple of, uh, just very quickly, um, you're all very familiar with the types of stories that get associated with prehistoric sites in England. But just to kind of uh, give you some of the background and some of the interesting sides of things, I'm just going to go through some of the key myths. And these these are not just applied to one site. These are um, uh, myths and legends that apply to a number of prehistoric sites, both in England and elsewhere in the British Isles. Um, and it's really only recently that I've become sort of more aware of how um, these crop up again and again at different sites. Um, many sites have a, a number of different stories associated with them, um, but there, there's ways of tracing these stories both geographically and, and in the way that they've been recorded um, by early antiquarians. So one example um, is giants. Um, the idea that in prehistoric times there were a race of giants, this is a biblical um, uh, origin, um, actually quite logical if you think about these enormous standing stones and portal dolmens and monuments that they would have been erected by people who were of superhuman strength. Um, and one example of that is uh, uh, Wade's Causeway, one of the properties we look after in North Yorkshire which is a, a Roman road, possibly has earlier origins, um, but it's named after the giant Wade um, uh, from Germanic mythology. And um, it's first named as such in the 10th century Anglo-Saxon poem, The Traveller's Song. Um, and it's said to have been built by Wade so that his wife Belle could go and milk her huge cow on the moors. And there's all kinds of associated stories, including the fact that um, Belle builds nearby Pickering Castle. So that's... Uh, one example of, of giants. Um, another one, petrified people. This crops up again and again, particularly related to the tradition of um, uh, it being uh, dancing or playing sports on the Sabbath. Um, obviously, a Christian movement, um, something that placed you know great emphasis on keeping the Sabbath holy, um, free from toil. Um, a sort of early 17th century records of this, uh, and 
common sites like the Hurlers and like Stanton Drew um, have this associated with them. But also um, this site, which is Mitchell's Fold in, in Shropshire, which is supposedly the petrified remains of a witch who uses her devious ways to milk um, a magic cow. Uh, this magic cow was uh, installed on this site and the villagers were, were very pleased because it provided constant supply of milk. The witch went up and milked this poor cow into a sieve, so tricking it into giving away far more milk than it wanted to. And so the villagers turned her, uh, basically turned her into stone and surrounded her by a ring of other stones to, to make sure she never escaped again. So another petrified people, Countless stones is a very common one. No one can ever count the stones twice alike. And if they do manage to, then you know, great misfortune would befell them. This is a, a legend associated with sites like Little Kit's Coty House in Kent, also known as the Countless Stones, the Rollwright Stones, Stonehenge. It's often attributed to sites where it is actually quite difficult to count the stones. Um, and uh, even now people will say to me, how many stones are at Stonehenge? And it's a really difficult question to answer. So it's this element of truth in this, but it's the idea that you, you can't count them. And if you do, so um, it's often associated with terrible thunderstorms and things where early antiquarians and surveyors were trying to count the stones and uh, are afflicted with um, supernatural events. Uh, as Owen mentioned earlier, there's a huge number of sites, both natural sites and prehistoric sites associated with the devil. Um, many of them uh, associated with sort of devil throwing bits of piece of rock, throwing earth, throwing uh, um, various coits. Um, obvious obvious kind of reasons I guess um, but it's one of those things that found found so widely that um, it's it's interesting that we don't pick up on it more in our interpretation mythical heroes we've got you know Arthur's stone all kinds of Arthurian connections this is Arthur's round table up in Cumbria which is a henge monument uh, obvious reasons why it's called the round table um, but also sites like little um, like Kitscoty house not far from little Kitscoty house which is associated with Hengist it's the burial place of Hengist the uh, legendary Saxon leader in Kent and uh, healing powers you know so Stonehenge is quite famous for this, the blue stones um, having particular healing powers. In 1707, the Reverend James Broom wrote of Stonehenge, if the stones be rubbed or scraped and water thrown upon the scrapings, they will heal any green wound or old sore. Um, and Menatol, very famously fertility uh, legends and stories associated with it in that the ritual of crawling through the hole nine times if you're an adult and three times if you're a child was said to cure both rickets and scrofula so very handy um, so I just wanted to explore a little bit about kind of how we um, might present these tales of stories um, and, and our sites now I think that um, particularly in England um, there has been quite a long period of uh, archaeologists and heritage managers and historians not not engaging with with this these aspects of the sites and and that's that kind of authorized view that Sally just mentioned about um, what is appropriate to be telling uh, visitors what is it what is not appropriate and I think this is a particularly English thing um, in uh, Ireland for example where there's obviously much greater traditions of um, early literature and uh, much more well-known associated legends. Legend is much more integrated into archaeological interpretation. This is um, uh, O'Kelly's book um, which presents his New Newgrange excavations and there's an entire chapter in this book which covers the associated uh, legends and early um, Irish uh, literature references to the site. This is very unusual and you would never find this um, uh, in England because of course we don't have such surviving uh, records but it's also something that's 
it means that in England, it's not seen as something that's appropriate to be engaged with, or at least maybe not until recently. Um, so you get sites uh, like Tintagel, for example, where we know that there's incredible amounts of interesting mythology, and yet in the Blue Guide, you know, the official Ministry of Works guidebook, uh, it's not mentioned at all. Um, and in fact, Raleigh Radford, who writes this book in 1939, says there's no evidence whatsoever to support the legendary connection of the castle with King Arthur. So, you know, he's very much poo-pooing any of the um, mythical and legendary uh, so stories associated with the site because there's no evidence in the archaeology that he's excavating. And this, this leaves something of a gap, really. Um, this is just a, an image of a book that's available online that you don't get. There's basically a lacuna, a kind of vacuum into which a whole range of other uh, uh, publications and stories and web content and all kinds of things uh, uh, fall, which is because, I, I think anyway, and which I'm kind of arguing here, is because uh, as heritage managers, we have not necessarily engaged with these um, aspects of our site's histories. And so people are incredibly interested in them and, and there is a gap there and people are fascinated by them. And so you get all kinds of other people writing books and, and telling stories about these sites. Um, so Grinsel was kind of an exception to all of this. He kind of uh, was someone who really was quite happy to really investigate the early records of folklore and present them alongside the archeological evidence. Um, now, we all know how popular um, folklore is, and um, um, Owen described how um, popular courses are around the world. I think I want to sign up to your MA, Owen. It sounds fascinating. Um, but, you know, we have a, a, a screenshot here of Folklore Thursday, uh, 53,000 followers, you know, just on that one Twitter account for a place to share folklore. And it's becoming, I think, over the last, I don't know, five, ten years, increasingly visible, I think, perhaps, and popular, um, uh, particularly in, in web um, fora. Um, uh, this is a, a cigarette card, which um, I have the full collection of the 50 cigarette cards of um, the folklore of um, Britain. This is Wayland Smith, which is a popular and very well-known story. But, you know, th these are things that capture the imagination. They're brilliant stories. Um, you know, they're, they're a really good way of uh, getting people engaged in sites and interested in visiting and, and exploring their local heritage. Um, so, you know, and that's what I was sort of arguing there. What, why else should we bother? Why do we not just tell, you know, it's Wayland Smithy, it's a Neolithic monument, uh, full stop. People are interested for a start. These are magical stories. They draw people in, they engage people. They're fantastic stories as um, Hannah and Kate have just demonstrated how inspiring they could be for creative outlets, not only writing, but also uh, art, music, um, all kinds of uh, creative outlets. This is a very famous um, engraving of, you know, the finding of King Arthur on the beach at Tintagel from Tennyson's Idols of the King. I mean, you can't get much greater than Tintagel in the way that it's inspired people like Tennyson, uh, you know, musical composers, poets, writers, you name it. Um, so they really do inspire and set the imagination flowing. They're also uh, really worth while studying, as I'm sure many of you know, because they do sometimes contain elements of truth. Um, this is uh, the story of Merlin erecting Stonehenge. He's depicted here as a giant, so you get two myths for the price of one in this image. Um, but he um, is, is described as bringing the giant stance, the, the stones of Stonehenge from Ireland um, as a memorial to the, the British dead. Now, 
that's a, a myth that's recorded by Geoffrey of Monmouth and many others. But um, we do now know that the blue stones, the smaller stones, not the ones he's putting up here, the smaller stones at Stonehenge do come from southwest Wales. And so there is an element of truth here in that we that that myth, that legend captures the idea of these stones having come from somewhere else, having come from a very long way away and having come from, in effect, you know, the far west of Wales, which in to all intents and purposes in the medieval period could be described as Ireland. So there, there, there are elements of truth in myths and legends and sometimes and as archaeologists and historians, we, you know, we, we do well to kind of uh, take them seriously. Oops. And of course, myths are entirely entwined with history. Um, you just can't understand how these sites have been interpreted, altered, built, visited, understood without understanding how they're so entwined with um, stories of myth and legend. This is an obvious one, King Arthur's Round Table in the Great Hall at Winchester, but um, so many of the sites that English Heritage look after and, and sites more generally have uh, been completely intertwined with history and the myths and legends completely influence how they've been developed, how they've been uh, used, how they've been altered. So um, it, it's kind of uh, a bit disingenuous really to just try and present the history without by you know without the legend, without stripping out all of that you know interesting stuff and just presenting the pure history. It's, there's no such thing in effect. Um, and what happens if we don't present uh, these stories? Um, others will as I said. So there's a, there's a bit of a vacuum that's created if we don't tackle these. Um, and that's something I've been guilty of myself. So these are two panels that stand at Wayland Smithy Longbarrow, uh, guardianship site in Oxfordshire. The panel at the bottom is a very standard English Heritage Free Sites interpretation panel that I wrote about 13 years ago, I think. Um, and in it, it's a, it's a fairly standard panel. I wouldn't go as far as say it was brilliant, but it tells you the Neolithic and prehistoric story of the site. It does not mention the legend. It does not mention the name. Um, whereas our guardianship panel, which is the one they can see at the top, uh, says named after the Saxon smith god Wayland. So it does refer in a very small passing way to the name of the site. Now, um, this is a bit problematic because uh, by focusing purely on the prehistoric story in the bottom panel, which I have to say was actually put up before the one at the top. Um, I've, I've kind of excluded really any later history of the site. I, I have mentioned that it was reconstructed and excavated by archaeologists, but I haven't touched on you know, some of the, the really crucial parts of the site about its name and the, the really fascinating legend that goes with it. And um, Howard Williams has uh, written about this um, on his great blog, Archaeodeath, recommend looking at it if you don't know it. And he says, Archaeologists cannot spend a century treating these sites as prehistoric and be surprised that ignoring their biographies of use and reuse creates a yawning space for extremist fantasies. It's not the press, but the prehistorians that create this problem. I think I'm guilty as charged in that respect. Um, so as we have heard from others um, previously, Wayland Smithy is known to have been a site that um, is unfortunately used by certain extremist groups. Um, it's 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 a very minor and small uh, number of people who engage in these activities. But by mentioning the fact that the site was named after the Saxon smith god Wayland, but not mentioning the fact that that was actually a 10th century application in a Christian period of a, a Germanic name, without presenting the more slightly more detailed aspect of that story, we're basically leaving a gap for um, interpretation by others. 
And I think that's something that we need to be aware of and to address. Um, it's a really complex topic, um, and I think, you know, I haven't got time to go into it massively today, but there's certainly, um, there's a reason for thinking seriously about myths and legends at our sites and, and thinking about how we can present them. So um, recent projects that I've been involved in um, that have tried to do this, um, I'm going to show you two examples. One is prehistoric, one's not, I'm afraid, but it is one that's been mentioned already today, so I think we ought to tackle it. Um, this is the, the, this is me trying to attempt to integrate presenting myths and legends at some of our guardianship sites. Um, I'm not saying that these this is the right way to go about it, and in fact, I quite like to hear people's feedback as to whether they this has worked or is the right way to do it. This first one is a relatively straightforward one, the site of Stanton Drew, which is a series of stone circles just south of Bristol. We uh, have recently installed a series of three panels at the site. Um, and what we did for this was on each of the panels, as you can see on this one, uh, we tell one of the stories associated with Stanton Drew. Now Stanton Drew is an amazing site for folklore. It has about five or six different key stories uh, relating to it. Um, this one reflects the wedding party and we commissioned an artist to um, provide us with some small illustrations that would go with that and made these boxes at the bottom of the panel which kind of tackle the story and gave a kind of question which we hope would uh, involve families and, and children in, in thinking about uh, the story in relation to the site uh, and engaging with it. Um, the artist Jenny Anderson produced these um, three uh, draw, uh, drawings, illustrations for us. So the wedding party story is at the top, uh, the countless stones and the baker who puts a loaf of bread on each of the stones in order to try and count them. Um, and the idea that the stones move and dance and potentially go down to the river at night. Um, and, and so we, we told each of these stories on each of the panels alongside the more standard, I guess, archeological interpretation and uh, uh, historical information about the site. Um, so that's a very straightforward way of doing something. Obviously, most of our prehistoric sites are um, open air. They have limited amounts. Sorry, we sh I should have said we also put those images and stories on the website. Um, there's a limited amount you can do um, with that, although um, as uh, some of my colleagues have presented today, there is a hundred different ways of engaging uh, uh, groups like education groups um, in these stories and legends and um, there, there are there are other ways of tackling it at Maiden Castle recently we did uh, a soundscape audio project um, which doesn't actually include myths and legends but it could be an ideal way of presenting some of these stories to a visiting public as a downloadable app or mp3 file for people to listen to um, some of the related stories and legends that attract to our site so there, i think there are many more ways we could explore this as an organization um, so um i want to tackle tintagel um just checking time yeah uh, so um tintagel was a project i was involved in um back from 2015 onwards for a couple of years. Um, uh, it's a site where, as I mentioned before, Raleigh Radford's guidebook from 1939, dismissing the idea of Arthur has basically been the prevailing way we've presented the site up until 2015. Um, the old uh, displays on the site were minimal. There was absolutely nothing to help visitors understand what the connection to King Arthur was. Most visitors knew that there was a connection to King Arthur because they approached through the village of Tintagel with its myriad of plastic swords um, and a huge number of shops and uh, kind of, you know, King Arthur's car park, King Arthur's pub, etc. But once you got on the site, there was no information to help you understand what on earth this castle and this headland had to do with 
the legend, which is, you know, really problematic and confusing for visitors. So with the new interpretation scheme, we deliberately um, put the legend and the history together on a level pegging. As I mentioned before, the history of this site is completely entwined with the legend. You can't understand it without putting the two alongside each other. The site has uh, an early medieval settlement, trading settlement. Uh, it then becomes uh, named as the birthplace of King, Ar uh, sorry, the conception place, not the birthplace, oh, slap on the wrist, conception place of King Arthur by Geoffrey of Monmouth. It then becomes selected by Richard of Cornwall for the site of his castle. Um, which is built from the, in the 1230s. He deliberately selects Tintagel because of its legendary associations, both with Arthur, but also with the legend of Tristan and Isolt, which is a King Mark's castle is, you know, a really important legend attached to the site. The castle then also becomes later ruinous and becomes the inspiration for Tennyson, uh, etc. So the, the site, you can't just present the archaeology and not mention uh, the legendary history. These things are completely intertwined. So in the exhibition, we, we told both aspects. Uh, one of the things we did was commission these, these pieces of book art to illustrate some of the stories. Uh, this is the story of Tristan and Isolt meeting in the garden. Uh, and in the garden itself, we installed what we called story slabs. So this is a, the garden itself is a walled garden up on the top of the headland, incredibly windy, if anyone knows it. Um, but people just kind of went in and there's a little panel, it said garden, and everyone just kind of went, oh, this is a bit of a windy exposed place for the garden. But to understand it, basically Richard O'Connell is creating a literary landscape here. He's creating the various aspects that come from the legends and adding them to his castle deliberately. So we installed, uh, I think, about six or seven of these slabs in the garden as you walk around the garden. So you actually get an aspect of the Tristan and Isolt story, um, the, the Barul's version of the story, um, as you walk around the garden. Um, we also did things which I think some people might have, uh, think is a lot more controversial. Um, but I would like to point out that both of these aspects, although they may look very permanent, are really not. The beach that you can see there with Merlin's face is ravaged by winter storms. Those boulders move around and we replace those metal steps every year nearly because they're washed away in storms. We think that this carving will last about 15 years and then it will be long forgotten like the rest of the, the boulders on the beach. Um, and the statue is something that we could very easily uh, remove its bolts and take it away if we wanted to. Um, but the, the, this was an attempt by us to try and add uh, playful, interactive um, and sort of memorable aspects to the site, which told the story of that absence in effect, the fact that King Arthur is attached to uh, Tintagel, but he is not present on site. There's no archaeological evidence. There's no nothing you can look at and stand and say, this is the bit. The, 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 it's all ephemeral. So we asked an artist to, to work with that idea about him being there and not there. And that's where the Gallos statue came from. And the Merlin sculpture is deliberately very, very small and deliberately hidden. So you actually have to work very hard to find it. I was on the beach filming a piece for the one show and a, a lady came down, she said, what are you filming for? And she, we said, oh, well, we're filming because of all the controversy over this uh, sculpture. She said, oh, what sculpture is that? And it took her about 15 minutes to find it. So it's a deliberately hidden thing for people to find on the beach and adds just something that tells them that this is, a, you know, it's a place that's associated with Merlin and with these stories. Now, I just wanted to mention quickly um, Woodhenge, just because Tim uh, picked up on it before. 
it's a really interesting example of a prehistoric site that we look after where there isn't traditional myths and legends, but there is um, modern myths and legends, and that's to do with the child sacrifice in the middle. This flint cairn marks the site where Cunnington found um, the three-year-old child. And as you can see, people come and put flowers and, and offerings on it on a regular basis. Now, um, Cunnington does mention the burial in the middle, but she doesn't mention it's a sacrifice. And most archaeologists have agreed that although the skull is cleft, that may be just because a three-year-old skull is not yet fused and uh, the skull may have just come apart. Although I do think the description of, of the skull being uh, like two burials and side by side does suggest that perhaps this burial, uh, it was a cleft skull or, or it was uh, perhaps a mummified um, uh, a burial that was then uh, partly decomposed by the time it was put into the ground. Unfortunately, as Tim said, this, this skeleton's lost. We can't do the kind of biomolecular analysis of it that we would for any other burial where we could find out much more about that, about the, um, the isotopes, the genetics, et cetera, et cetera, that would tell us much more. So it's a bit of a mystery. We don't mention it on the modern interpretation panel at the site, but as you can see, it is a focus for many people. So it's almost got this modern folklore around it where people um, associate this Flint Cairn with the child burial, with the child sacrifice, and it becomes a sort of centre for um, deposition and, and offerings. Uh, and it obviously means a huge amount to the people who visit the site. So I just thought that was an interesting example of, of a kind of more, much more modern piece of folklore that's become attached to a prehistoric site. So just to sum up, is there such a thing as authentic myths? Um, I think yes, I think we need to be uh, thinking about this a lot more. We should be taking this aspect of our sites quite seriously and thinking about how we present them. Of course, this is rigorous academic research. This is going back to the primary sources, to the antiquarian records, picking up where these stories come from and working out you know, what, what was appropriate to be presenting about them. But also an acknowledgement of how such stories and myths and legends have influenced you know, the historical narratives of the site, but also how they've uh, inspired art, literature, music, etc. And presenting these stories in an imaginative, engaging ways alongside archaeological and historical narratives. So I should say that at Tintagel, there are 18 new interpretation panels across the site, uh, which tell the archaeological and his historical side of the site, as well as the artistic installations. So. I just want, I guess this is uh, just a, a way of asking questions about how we do tackle this with um, heritage sites and and whether we're going about this in the right way. I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear people's feedback, but um, at least I think we're moving in, an, in a direction where this is something that we're, we're doing much more often. So thank you. <laughs>